This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. All right, welcome back. Mike Smith in for Simi. There's about uh, 50 anti-pipeline protesters right now occupying Attorney General David Eby's office in Vancouver. They are demanding a meeting with him, and they have told uh, people to get comfortable, sit in his office, and don't move until they get the meeting. They might have a long wait because he's not there. The legislature is in session in Victoria, and that's uh, where I believe he is right now i think for most people who've heard that they're occupying eb's office they'd probably say good just stay right there don't be coming out and blocking any more roads or bridges like you did yesterday but with this group of protesters you just never know what is going to happen next so we're keeping a close eye on this for you and if there is any more disruptions of traffic in vancouver or anywhere else you can bet you'll hear it here first. So make sure you keep it locked right here. Our hot question of the day for you is, real simple one, uh, do you support uh, these protests or not? At CKNW on Twitter is where you will find the hot question today, at CKNW on Twitter. Phone me on the buzz line today. Or Actually, here's a hot question. Let me get, get this right here. Do you want the police to shut the protests down? Do you want the cops to move in there and shut some of these blockades down? Now, a lot of people, I think, are going to say yes to this because this is just causing too much hassle and grief for people. But the cops are trying to kind of keep a lid on it and defuse it and de-escalate it where they can. But at some point, I think you reach a a tipping point and maybe the police do have to take some more direct action, especially if they start doing things like shutting down bridges again. At CKNW on Twitter is where you'll find the hot question today. Phone me on the buzz line today. Leave me a voicemail there. 604-331-BUZZ is the number. 604-331-2899. Give me a follow on Twitter today, please, at Mike Smith News on Twitter. S-M-Y-T-H, Mike Smith News on Twitter. And send me an email, mike at cknw.com. We are watching very closely what's happening with these uh, roving protests and whether there'll be more blockades uh, in the city of Vancouver today. There are efforts underway to stop a blockade of a rail line in northern BC going on right now, too. Let's keep talking about the fight over this pipeline in northern British Columbia. There's so much stuff going on. A lot of moving parts here at this thing. At this On this hour, you got anti-pipeline protesters occupying the office of Attorney General David Eby in Vancouver. Uh, that has been going on here in the last hour or so. They are demanding a meeting with the Attorney General. They're not going to get one, at least not anytime soon, because he's not there. He's at the legislature in Victoria, where the B.C. Liberals have been demanding that the government get tougher against these protesters and blockades that we've been seeing uh, springing up. Uh, Premier John Horgan here just in the last few minutes saying he doesn't want to see any force being used here because he thinks that will just make things worse. Meanwhile, we're keeping an eye on these uh, roving protests for you and whether they're going to snarl any more traffic in the city of Vancouver. You may have just heard on your news there with uh, traffic of uh, reports of some protesters on Broadway. So we're keeping a close eye on that for you. Of course, it all comes down to the Coastal Gas Link Pipeline. This is a natural gas pipeline that would pump natural gas to the proposed LNG Canada mega project, the export terminal, liquefied natural gas, freeze that gas, put it onto tankers, ship it over to Asia. This is a huge project. It's the biggest 
in Canadian history. Is it threatened by these pipeline project protesters and blockades? Let's check in now with Brian Cox. He is the president and CEO of the BC LNG Alliance. They represent the LNG industry here. Brian, thank you for coming in. Great to be here, Mike. Thanks. Tell me, tell me briefly what you guys do over there at the LNG Alliance. Well, really, we we engage with British British Columbians and Canadians about what the opportunity is for LNG uh, development here in British Columbia and in Canada. So we uh, we engage with multiple stakeholders, with governments, with the the broader public about what this opportunity is to produce uh, the lowest emission that, uh, LNG in the world and get it to parts of the world that sorely need it right now. What- uh, Go ahead, Mike. Sorry. Yeah, what do you think of these protests and blockades? Well, I guess what I'd like to say to your listeners is is they can have every confidence that this project, the Coastal Gas Link project that will feed the LNG Canada project, is being built uh, for all the right reasons and uh, in the right way. And so yeah. this is a project that's a $40 billion project that is engaged with Indigenous communities and gone through all regulatory processes that is employing thousands of British Columbians and Canadians and importantly Indigenous people right now. Yeah. The work is ongoing and, and this is an important project for our country for a variety of reasons. Yeah, one of the things I find kind of ironic about these blockades and protests is that they say they're standing in solidarity with Indigenous people, yet there are so many Indigenous people working on the project. I mean, there's hundreds of people putting this pipe in the ground. I'm sure there's a lot of Indigenous employment with the export terminal, too, is there? There is absolutely an opportunity for Indigenous communities all up and down the line, and it's happening right now. So these are opportunities that are uh, that are happening as we speak on the ground in communities across the province. Okay, when I take a look at some of these protests, I I wonder if they're doing themselves more harm than good, because when you inconvenience the public like this, I don't think that's the way that you get public support. But, Brian, have a listen to this. Yesterday on the show, I spoke to Peter McCartney, and he is a climate change campaigner with the Wilderness Committee, and I asked him about these protests and these blockades and whether he thinks they're a good thing, and here's what he told me. There were four out of six stories on the front page of the Golden Mill this morning about this pipeline. And so yeah. uh, I think the protests are having a huge effect. And, um, you know, we had lots of lots of friends on the ground there in Victoria. So it was an inspiring day. Okay, so he says this is inspiring. This is good. This is training a lot of media attention on, on the issue. And maybe he thinks that's that's good for his cause to try and shut these projects down. But I don't know. What's your take on it? I mean, when you talk to people I and mean, you take a look at polling and public opinion on this, is 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 the public turning against this project or is it gaining steam? Well, we we released some polling uh, a couple of weeks ago, Mike, showing that there's broad support for LNG development uh, in British Columbia. And importantly, the opposition to LNG development in British Columbia has dropped sub- substantially even in the last year. Uh, the importance of this project, we need to put it into context what we're doing here and why we're building this LNG opportunity. And I think it was really evidenced uh, in the international agency's uh, report that came out earlier this week showing that uh, as the world economy is growing by almost 3%, emissions have flatlined. And a big reason for that is because of the switch from coal to natural gas. The biggest, the, the country that saw the biggest declines in, uh, in emissions was the United States, if you can believe it. Why? Because of their switch from coal to natural gas. The report also highlighted that 80% of the emissions growth in the world right now is in Asia because of coal and coal growth. LNG is a part of the solution to that. And British Columbia, the LNG Canada project, will produce the lowest emission LNG in the world. So this is a very important project for our shared goal, which is to reduce emissions as quickly as we can globally. 
Okay, and the reason that the LNG is, is better than coal is because, what, you can produce the same unit of energy for fewer emissions. Yeah, the right? emissions intensity is much less with natural yeah. gas. And really importantly, Mike, for your listeners, uh, the particulate matter is next to, to nothing. And right now, there's 7 million people dying every year in the world because of poor air quality, mostly in Asia. So we have an opportunity to get our natural gas, our lowest emission LNG, to parts of the world that need it now because people are literally dying and we have the opportunity to reduce emissions globally now. No. Climate change is a global uh, it's a global opportunity here. Speaking of Brian Cox from the BC LNG Alliance, so I guess the deal is if we, we pump our natural gas out of the ground here, ship it over to Asia, sell it to them, they burn it over there and burn less coal as a result, right? So does that mean overall fewer emissions? If they burn our natural gas instead of their coal, that's a good thing. We're talking about orders of magnitude reduction in emissions, Mike. When you look at the LNG Canada project alone, uh, 60 to 90 million tons of carbon dioxide could be displaced through that project. That is more than the province of British Columbia produces in a year. So, so it's important for us in British Columbia and in Canada to think globally about what the solutions are. And uh, LNG is a big part of the solution. Along with renewables, along with nuclear, we need every solution we can right now to, to get bend this curve of emissions growth down. And we're seeing it in this report last week that it's starting to work, that we're bending the curve, but we need to get right. the solutions to parts of the world, 80% growth, like I said earlier, like Asia, that are seeing huge growth in emissions. Okay, now the environmental movement, though, will say, well, that's just kind of corporate spin because actually you're going to have lots of emissions with this LNG because you got to frack it out of the ground and then you got to pump it through a pipeline. Then you got to you got to freeze it and you got to ship it across an ocean to Asia. And that's all creating emissions, too. So have a listen to this now. Here's the same guy that we played earlier. This is Peter McCartney on yesterday uh, from the Wilderness Committee on this precise point, kind of pushing back on the argument that this LNG is actually better for the planet if we if we sell it over in Asia. Here he is. I mean, it's amazing to watch the spin that, you know, pro-industry PR people put on the, on this. It is true that when gas burns, it has less of a carbon uh, pollution creation than coal. But by the time you frack for the stuff in northeast BC, um, put it through leaky infrastructure to a liquefaction plant where they have to burn it for power to cool the gas down to negative 162 degrees and then ship it across the ocean, you know, th any benefit that you'd see is, is lost in that conversation. What do you say to that? I mean, he's basically saying that you're not, we're not gaining any, any ground on the emissions by doing this. Well, it's just patently incorrect what he's saying. Uh, nobody produces uh, our, our natural gas more responsibly than British Columbia, than Canada. Our regulations are top of the world with how we produce, uh, whether it's hydraulic fracturing, whether it's the use of water, whether it's any of the processes that we use. Like I said, the, uh, the facilities themselves will be the lowest emitting in the world, and we will be able to get that gas to parts of the world that need it. And that's not to mention the, the Montney Basin, the Western Sedimentary Basin, where we get our gas from, is one of the lowest carbon basins on the planet. So we need to think globally about this. Natural gas is part of the solution. It's currently coming from countries like the United States, like 
Qatar, like Australia, who are producing it at higher emissions than we can do it. We have an opportunity to do what we've always done, Mike, in Canada, which is to play an outsized role in global solutions. This is our opportunity. It's time to come together. We're showing it so clearly, the fact that Indigenous communities are our partners in this project. They have been from the very beginning, and it's time for Canada to come together on this. I think the indigenous support for the project is critical and and by the way just in the in the coming up later on in this hour I'm going to be speaking to a guy uh from Coastal Gaslink the pipeline company who manages their indigenous contracting so this is the guy who does business deals with First Nations and with indigenous owned companies and it's pretty extraordinary how much money in contracts is being signed here with uh indigenous companies that are putting putting uh, native people to work so I think that's an important part of it but you still have the situation with these hereditary chiefs of the Wet'suwet'en being opposed to the pipeline. And let me play one more clip from you, for you from uh, Peter McCartney yes, on yesterday's show. I asked him about the, uh, the opposition and whether these five hereditary chiefs should be allowed to overrule all the other First Nations that support the pipeline in this project. And here's what he said. Because that's how human rights work, and the BC Human Rights Commissioner was very clear on this. You you cannot. Um, it, this oh, isn't geez. majority rule. It's it's yeah. five. These yeah. five hereditary yeah. chiefs have rights rule. that have been recognized wow. by the Supreme Court, and and you need to get everybody on side. That's how consent works. Okay, he said there it's not majority rule here. He says you need to get everybody on side. You've got to have unanimity among all these First Nations, among all these hereditary chiefs, for this thing to go forward. It's not majority rule. Is that even possible? I, I, I don't see how that's possible to get, to get absolute unanim, unanimous consent to this thing. Well, obviously, the Wet'suwet'en are are having a a very important governance discussion internally, and it's good to hear that they're continuing to meet internally to have that discussion, as many nations have have done over the years. It's important to keep in context that all 20 of the elected nations have signed on to the project, and they haven't just signed on it because industry said so, Mike. They've done it because they've done their due diligence. They've done their work, they've done their research, and they decided. And now they're, they're part partnering in this project in ways that their communities have never seen before. So th- it's time to talk about uh, how how amazing this is, to tell you the honest truth, and really what's happening up in northern British Columbia right now on the path to reconciliation. There are uh, p- very powerful things uh, happening. There's a new generation of leadership within Indigenous communities, within industry, and together we've got this, Mike. We're going to get it done, and we're going to get it done together. Thanks for coming in. It's a pleasure, Mike. Thanks I, so much. I appreciate this. Brian Cox, he's the president and CEO of the BC LNG Alliance. They represent the LNG industry. Some of the developments breaking at this hour in Victoria, Premier John Horgan, uh, very likely on the phone right now with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau as they continue to talk about the pipeline, anti-pipeline blockades that have sprung up around uh, British Columbia and the rest of Canada. Uh, the government also this morning through John Horgan's office saying that they will agree to meet with Gitscan and uh, Wet'suwet'en hereditary leaders in some sort of effort to find a compromise or a breakthrough here. I think that could could be difficult. They've tried that in the past. 
the we're keeping a close eye as well on the occupation of Attorney General David Eby's office in Vancouver. As we continue to follow all these developments and we hear from both sides in the pipeline fight, one thing that I think is important to recognize and understand is the benefits that the project is creating for First Nations and for Indigenous people. Now, you may have heard that all 20 of the First Nations along this pipeline route have signed uh, benefit-sharing agreements with the company through their elected band councils. A lot of people know that now, that the, t- the 20 First Nations support it here the, along, that, along that pipeline corridor. What you may not know are some of the details of the individual business development deals and contracts that are being signed, like over $600 million worth of contracts. I write about this today in the province newspaper, and I strongly encourage you to check it out. You can read it online at theprovince.com or follow me on Twitter where I've tweeted it out. And the deals and the contracts and the projects that are spinning off from this pipeline are really extraordinary. And one of the ones I find really amazing to me is one in northern British Columbia. It's a 700-worker residential facility for pipeline workers that's being built in partnership with the Natalie Wutan First Nation near Fort Fraser. They built this facility on the ruins of a residential school that was torn down in the 1990s. This is a school that had been the subject of pain for this community. And the leaders there are saying this is like an historical event that they build an, an indigenous-controlled business enterprise on the ruins of a residential school. Think of the symbolism of that. That's just one. That's just one of the deals, one of the spin-off economic deals from this project. And whether you support it or not, I think it's important to understand uh, how this project is benefiting a lot of First Nations people who uh, are supporting it. Let me introduce you now to George Hemian. He is the manager of Indigenous Contracting for Coastal Gaslink, and I'm very pleased to welcome him. Hiya, George. Yeah, hi there, Mike. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks a lot for doing this. I know you d- you haven't done a whole lot of radio interviews, so I, I I'm grateful to you for that. And one thing I want to let's talk about your background first. Well, so you're an, you're an indigenous guy yourself, right? Squamish Nation. Yeah, I'm a member of a uh, Squamish Nation, and I've worked with the project since uh, essentially since the beginning, since uh, 2012. How did you get into that? Well, I think for me, I mean, some of my background in schooling, I was always interested in Indigenous governance and various policy-type pieces. And so for me, it was uh, looking at benefits and how you can bring economic development as a way to address various um, concerns in those communities sort of naturally uh, was allowed me to gravitate to those types of fields. So, uh, But coming to, uh, to TC Energy into the Coastal Gas Link Project, it was this great opportunity to essentially look at what are those contracting and employment opportunities and how can we integrate um, you know our activities in a way that ensure benefits to those communities okay let's talk a little bit about that how uh, what are the values so far of the contracts that have been signed with first nations and with indigenous owned businesses here sure so uh, I think so far the there's been approximately 850 million in contracts that have been awarded to indigenous businesses many of whom are actually partnered with local non-indigenous businesses 
And I think for our project, we're forecasting over a billion dollars in in contract awards. What I should mention is if we back up a little bit, uh, we had an announcement uh, a while back where we announced $620 million in contract awards for camps clearing first aid and security work, and these are largely uh, designated for Indigenous businesses. Again, like I mentioned, those have uh, largely essentially unfolded as Indigenous and local and non-Indigenous partnerships. But also as part of that uh, announcement, we identified an additional $400 million in uh, contracting opportunities that we we essentially targeted them for both Indigenous and local non-Indigenous businesses. And again, I think the, the, the real positive story in that is of that $400 million, we've actually uh, um, awarded approximately $230 million of it, and the large majority of it is actually going to Indigenous and local non-Indigenous businesses, and again, many Indigenous and local non-Indigenous partnerships. Okay, what, what kind of impact does that make? And the numbers you just outlined there are, are extraordinary. When you start throwing around numbers like $800 million in deals, like, is, this, is there any precedent for that in, in Canadian history with you know, these type of deals going to Indigenous businesses? Yeah, well, not in my experience. In my experience, this is historic for this country and how we engage uh, communities for contracting and employment especially along long linear projects, uh, I can tell you that, you know, the amount of work, whether it's employment or contracting and the engagement with these communities is absolutely unprecedented. Okay, speaking of George Hemian, he's the manager of Indigenous Contracting here for, for the pipeline. George, tell me a little bit about some of the, some of the deals and some of the projects that, have, that are going on. Like, you mentioned camps and clearing. What exactly is that? Like, is a camp like where the workers would live on the, that were working on the pipeline? Yeah, I mean, our yeah. workforce accommodations. And, and you know, yeah. off the top, you, you'd referenced um, the Nodley Wooten First Nation, yeah. and they're partnered with Horizon North and Falcon Camps, who's actually uh, out of Prince George, for the Little Rock Lake Lodge. And, again, right. located on a site of a residential school, um, you know, the location of this camp is important. And when we were talking uh, in the earlier days with the community, they absolutely identified that that was an important an, an important location and an and, and important opportunity uh, for their community members. So for right. us, Did, is that was yeah. it important because they saw that as symbolic? Like you know, you take the ruins of a residential school is kind of a symbol for of sure. pain to this community, yeah, and rebuild. Yeah, I mean, without putting words in their mouths, but yeah. I think that the whole idea is it symbolized a bit of a turning point and and marked a, sort of a, a new way for um, both the nation and for industry to move forward uh, and ensure benefits to, to community members in a very responsible way. Yeah, I think that's amazing. What's, what is clearing? Is that like cutting down trees to make way for the pipeline? <clears throat> Yeah, uh, right away clearing is another big one in terms of uh, First Nation or Indigenous participation. It's exactly that. It's clearing the right away of, of trees and getting things ready uh, for construction. And there's all sorts of great examples of uh, First Nation member businesses who's, who have partnered with uh, their own uh, communities to provide these services. So one example is Taba. Uh, they're partnered with the Nakazle Wooten, uh, again, a member owned business partnered with the nation to provide clearing services 
Uh, M&M Resources is an indigenous business partnered with a number of nations, including Doig River First Nation, Blueberry River First Nation, and Nitai Bun Nation to provide clearing services. Also probably wow. worth mentioning, um, Does Show Logging is a McLeod Lake Indian band business performing a good chunk of clearing workforce as well, as well as uh, Kaya Resources, which is a Witset, a Wet'suwet'en uh, uh, sort of broader Wet'suwet'en uh, community, Witset is, and they've uh, been, you know, been just great in, in working with us for both clearing and access roads. In many cases, I think we're talking about communities that have been, uh, had tough times. Maybe they got some high unemployment rates, uh, remote communities in some cases. How important are these jobs? I mean, that's got to be precious to people, this type of investment in jobs. Well, it's it's absolutely critical. So, Mike, you know, you and I have good career jobs. We're here working, but in in many of those communities, you know, finding uh, a good bit of work for a period of time is not easy to find. So, we feel that the employment opportunities from this project um, are critically important, both for essentially that paycheck, but also for folks to help build their skills. And many of those skills will be transferable, and they can go and take that into other areas maybe after the project or perhaps if they feel like hey pipelining is a, a career that they want to get into um, then they can sort of follow that work where wherever it goes right people might think like okay the the camps uh, the worker camps and the clearing for the pipeline along the pipeline corridor are kind of obvious work opportunities for people but you mentioned a couple of others that maybe not might spring to mind for people and kind of spin off employment, like first aid, for example, or I, I've been yeah. reading about security and, and some of these facilities that can be uh, filled by indigenous workers, uh, food services. I mean, there's a lot of spin off opportunities there. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So all of those um, activities are largely, again, being performed by First Nation joint ventures. So we know for security, there's gonna, we're going to need static security at all of our locations. So it's a great opportunity for folks. And we're actually going to be coming forward with a bit of a call and an effort to ensure uh, that folks are interested in that service. They're going to get that opportunity. And, and along with that, we'll run them through their appropriate training so that they're best suited to, uh, to perform those activities. Activities. Similarly, you mentioned food services yeah. when it comes to things like the camps. Again, I think it's right. important to, to recognize these are First Nation joint ventures. So, um, you know, Coastal GasLink and folks on my team and within the prime contractors teams, uh, we're going to be working closely with actually those First Nation joint ventures to make sure that the opportunities are getting out to both local and uh, Indigenous uh, uh, community members who are interested in working. Speaking to George Hemian, he's the manager of Indigenous Contracting for the Coastal GasLink Pipeline. George, what has this been like for you personally as an Indigenous guy yourself from the Squamish Nation to be involved in, in some of these business deals? I understand you're an, are you an artist as well, I believe you told me? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, so, you know, just backing up for sure. Yeah. I mean, this has been, you know, to be part of such... Uh, a great opportunity just in and of itself is is a great honor for me and you know I was uh, speaking a long time ago when I was doing my education with Frank Calder he's a great NISCA leader and, yeah. and he told me he said 
you know, we need to affect change, and, and one of the way for one of the ways for folks to do that is to work within these corporations, work within government, and affect change that way. So I've taken that really personally to heart. Um, you know, that's the work I do within uh, this project. But on a personal note, you know, I, I seem to have this great blessing. Um, I'm a Coast Salish artist. I mentioned I'm a member of Squamish Nation, and I've had the opportunity to create artworks for each of these First Nations uh, that we're partnered with to celebrate and to illustrate the importance of our relationship. So when when I'm at each of these communities, I see my artwork, and it makes me, you know, immensely proud and honored to be part of the project and to be working with these communities. Yeah. I, I bet it does. It, it, can it be difficult, too, though? I mean, obviously, we've seen divisions in the community. I mean, I've heard from people. Is it, is it tough to stand up and say, I believe in these projects, I want to work with these companies, if some people in the community are, are opposed to it? Well, I mean... For me, it, it isn't difficult at all. I know that uh, Coastal Gas Link is, you know, we're, we're leading the way when it comes to sort of changing the way industry works with uh, Indigenous communities. And for me, when you start to talk about the benefits, especially around employment and, and how that can trickle down into the community to address various social issues, you know, we know language is important and all those things. So knowing that your efforts and what you're doing within the community certainly um, puts you in a good position to, uh, to face that criticism. George, it's been a pleasure to have you on here. Thank you for coming on. Yeah, thank you. Anytime. Okay, that's George Hemian, Manager of Indigenous Contracting for Coastal Gaslink. I thought it was really important to get him on because I think that people don't really understand the scale of the business opportunities, the employment, the income, the economic development that's going on with these First Nations, with these Indigenous workers and, 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 and Indigenous-owned companies. All right, let's uh, check in now with Global BC online reporter at the legislature, Richard Zussman, with the latest on the pipeline fights. Hi, Richard. Hey, Smitty. Thanks a lot for coming in. So another question period this morning. Yep. Um, with uh, the pipeline demonstrations and blockades dominating a lot of it. We're getting rapid developments here with some meetings that the Premier has agreed to uh, related to the pipeline. Apparently, he's talking on the phone to Justin Trudeau. Bring me up to date and everything that's going on here. Yeah, so they're talking on the phone right now, the Prime Minister and Premier John Horgan. I was hoping to be able to provide a little bit of an update about what they're talking about, but the phone call is still underway. But the underarching discussion will be about the roles that the federal government and the provincial government have to play here in terms of conversations with the Wet'suwet'en uh, and other First Nations communities uh, who are opposed to the Coastal Gasoline Pipeline and the roles that are being played. And you alluded to a meeting that's taking place. So the Premier Premier's office circulated a letter earlier from the Premier detailing that they have accepted a meeting uh, with the Wet'suwet'en uh, and around a blockade that's happening in the northern part of British Columbia right now on yeah. CN Rail that has basically shut down the Prince Rupert port. So we don't know when that meeting is going to take place. It also involves the Gitsam First Nation. The letter was right. sent to Gitsam Chief uh, Norman Stevens. The representative for the province in this will be Scott Fraser. But almost more importantly, there will be federal representation there. We haven't seen the federal government involved much yet in terms of dialogue um, with First Nations around the blockades and around the disruptions. So we know that Carolyn Bennett, federal minister, will be part of this meeting. They're still working on the timing of the, the meeting, but she will be involved. I've received a statement. I'll, I'll read it to you quickly from her office. 
uh, in terms of um, their thoughts on the meeting. And they say reconciliation is not only an indigenous issue, it is a Canadian imperative and one that must be uh, must involve all of us. Our government has confirmed our participation in the joint meeting. Minister Bennett is working with her counterpart of British Columbia, Scott Fraser, to arrange this meeting as soon as possible. Okay, and when I was talking to some people in the Premier's office this morning, the way they explained this to me was they had some people reach out and suggest to them if Horgan was agreeable to this meeting yeah. that this blockade of the train tracks would come down. Is that blockade still going on? Or is the blockade My understanding down? is it's still going on as yeah. they work out the details. But one of the lines in the letter that was sent is, I understand that on receipt of this letter and a similar commitment from Canada, the blockade of the CN line will be removed to allow for a period of calm and peaceful dialogue. So my understanding is the First Nations communities are also interested in putting a break on the blockade in order to allow the goods to move to the Prince Rupert port. You know, part of this discussion, and you mentioned question period today, the yeah. BC Liberals, all they're asking about is the impact on the economy and whether the BC government will do more to ensure that the rule of law is abided by. And the point that Horgan has made yesterday and again today is, do we really want to live in a province where the premier calls up the police, the RCMP, and says, you move in now and do this. You know, I think Horgan makes a valid point there, that we don't want to live in a police state, but the opposition makes the valid point that, you know, these peaceful protests, as peaceful as they may be, should not yeah. be interfering with the way people go to work and also the the flow of goods uh, and products. for the Yeah, Horgan made that point yesterday. And Dwayne, do you got that sound of John Horgan yesterday? Uh, when he was speaking about the, the the pressure on him to get the cops to intervene. Let's have a little listen to that. Here's Horgan. People say, hey, you're in my way. Get out of my way. Why aren't the cops doing something? I understand that. I uh, drove by two bridges the other day on my way home because they were both blocked. That's disappointing. But I do not want to be able to phone the police as the leader of the government and say, move, the, move those people off the bridge. That's not my role. Okay, yeah, he's saying it's not his job to tell the cops how to do their business. They operate independently and i've heard liberal governments say the same thing I mean, that's a common refrain anytime there's kind of pressure on a government to kind of intervene on something like this but the liberals seem to be suggesting what that that, that horgan should be ordering the cops to get involved or he should be saying stuff that's tougher against these blockades like what what precisely do they want yeah, so like as as usual with wilkinson sometimes it's tough to figure out precisely what he wants the government to do here and what we heard reference to this morning is brian pallister in manitoba who has asked for an injunction to be filed to remove uh, protesters from uh, the right away on a train track there but my understanding is the difference mm. is is that is a provincial right away whereas the cn right away is a private company and cn is working on its process to remove protesters and the BC government solution was let's have this meeting to help alleviate some of that pressure. So I think the situations are a little bit different. It's also important to note that the relationship that Horgan has with Trudeau is an important one. Yeah. And the, the, um, dialogue has been pretty open. Trudeau's obviously been traveling in Africa, but has taken the time to have this conversation with Horgan. Horgan was on the phone yesterday with Krista Freeland, the deputy prime minister. The federal government is now taking this seriously after receiving some criticism of not acting quick enough. And it's important to note the BC does have that access to ensure that, you know, what the province needs uh, will be uh, supported by the federal government. Let's talk about a couple of so many moving parts in this story, Richard, as it develops hour by hour. What's going on with David Eby and the occupation of his office? Office. We heard a report earlier from Jordan Armstrong saying one of his staffers actually locked herself in the bathroom in Eby's constituency office after all these protesters poured in there. What's going on yeah, there? Yeah, what we heard from David Eby this morning here was, you know, he's a long ways away from Vancouver. He seemed quite 
I don't want to use the word distraught, but frustrated in the sense that his staff were being treated like this while he was here. Didn't know all the details, but did say two things. First off, the importance was the uh, safety of his own staff and to ensure that they didn't feel threatened or were injured in this action. I think E.B. also, based on his previous track record at the B.C. Civil Liberties Association, has a respect for people doing these peaceful walk-ins, and he's allowed people into his office before. They sure, he used to be a protester himself. He, he did. <laughs> so I think he respects that. And then the second point he made, though, is that there's some private co- constituent information in that office mm. that they needed to ensure got out of the office. Yeah. And uh, that is a high priority of them. And he also wants to ensure that members of the community feel comfortable coming into the office uh, to have a discussion about their issues. So uh, he was not in any way saying the protesters shouldn't be there and they should immediately be arrested. He would never say that considering, as you mentioned, his track record in protest. But he did raise those two points, especially around uh, confidentiality and most importantly about the safety of his own staff. And that story that Jordan tells, I had heard that as well. And obviously it's troubling to hear someone feel like in their workplace they had to, to hide into a bathroom in order to avoid people invading their space. Okay, we saw a wild day here at the legislature on Tuesday and... Now there are threats of another government lockdown tomorrow in Victoria. We've seen some plans posted on social media to shut down government offices. The government is saying they got a plan to deal with it. What is the latest on that? Are we going to see a, a more blockades in Victoria tomorrow? Yeah, so it's taking place tomorrow morning. We're not sure on the size yet and, and how many uh, government buildings will actually be targeted. It is a Friday before a long weekend, and there are a number of government employees who have flex days. And I think with so much advanced warning, uh, individuals that uh, may take the day off work. It, it doesn't mean that British Columbians aren't going to receive the essential services they get from their provincial government. Uh, it just means that the day-to-day workings in in the bureaucracy may be disrupted. Uh, there's been a letter circulated by Don Wright, the head of the public service, uh, informing employees uh, that this is a possibility and uh, expressing that they have uh, the ability or the right to uh, remain at home if they feel like they're going to be uh, threatened going to their workplaces. And so, you know, it's it's another one of the evolving steps in terms of sending the message to the public that, you know, they, they're standing with the hereditary chiefs, they are concerned about the coastal gasoline pipeline, and the more disruption they can cause, it seems, the more attention they believe they can get. Richard, another busy news day for you. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah, thanks, Mitty. That's Richard Zussman, the global news reporter at the BC Legislature with the latest here on the pipeline fights. We continue to follow the pipeline protests and the blockades we've seen around the city. West Vancouver Councillor Craig Cameron says he is all in favor of peaceful protests, but he says when it comes to impacting people trying to get to work or medical appointments, there's something wrong. Have a listen to what he has to say. Yeah, it, it, it's a problem. And I think, you know, when when the blockade was at uh, Canby and Broadway, then, you know, it's an inconvenience, but there's alternatives. You can go up to 12, you can go down to 4th or 6th, and you can get around it. But uh, for the North Shore, when I heard that there was a possibility that the Lionsgate Bridge would get blockaded, but we wouldn't know, and we wouldn't know when, um, you know, it really causes concern for me because we already have terrible traffic on the North Shore. People already struggle to get across the bridge in both directions. And uh, and taking a bridge out um, without advance notice really leaves people who have to get across the bridge uh, one way or the other in a terrible situation. I mean, if you take a medical context, 
the surgeon has to get across the bridge to do the surgery, and the patient has to get across the bridge to get the surgery. It could be, you know, one circumstance. And that's, uh, and that's really concerning to me because these are innocent people. These are people who have no connection to the, to the coastal gas uh, pipeline. They're, you know, they're, they may well support Aboriginal reconciliation, but they have, they have to get across the bridge um, to live their lives. And so I think it's, you know, it, my feelings on the, the uh, you know, that sort of blockade are that, you know, it's wrong for, on various levels. It's illegal. It's clearly illegal to block the bridge. It's, uh, uh, I think it's inadvisable um, because I think it alienates uh, people from the cause that you're trying to advance. I don't think you're getting any more supporters because you take action like that. And I think it's also morally questionable because you're harming people who have no connection to the problem that you're complaining about. Is, is there a resolution? Would you be calling on the protesters to continue their, their protest, but maybe do it in such a way or in such a place that it's not putting such a big inconvenience on people? Yeah. I'm, I can't tell the protesters how to conduct their protests, but I would hope that they would be mindful at all times that there are people who need to get around the city who may very well sympathize with their position um, and who are entirely innocent, and, and they should make sure that people like that can uh, function in their daily lives. They, they, they shouldn't... Well, yeah, basically, they, I, would, I would hope that the protesters would be mindful of the collateral effects that they're having and that the ends uh, don't justify the means. You know, you can, there's, a, there's a great many people who feel very righteous about this cause, and, you know, and, and, I, and I hear that and I, and I sympathize with that. But that doesn't justify any action in support of that cause. And Craig, and, are you uh, hearing from people in West Vancouver uh, worried and concerned that, yeah, one of your bridges may be blocked at some point? Well, nobody knew about it until we'd heard about it from staff uh, last night, quite late, about the possibility. So nobody even raised the possibility of being unable to get across the lion's gate or the second arrows. So... Uh, I tweeted it out not because I was trying to get publicity uh, or, or anything like that, but because I was concerned that people have who have to get across the bridge have enough time to make alternate arrangements. And the, the problem is, I mean, the, the blockade would be a problem in and of itself. But the um, but the secondary problem is that we don't even know if and when it's coming. So. Let's say you have to get across the bridge and you would make alternate arrangements to accommodate the protest. Well, you don't even know when you need to make those uh, arrangements or that you need to make those arrangements. And so it just just creates an untenable situation. All right, that was West Vancouver City Councillor Craig Cameron in conversation with our own Janet Brown there about some of the threats to by blockaders to possibly shut down the Lionsgate Bridge, which has not happened yet, but there have been threats and, and uh, rumors that that could happen, and you just never know with these roving protesters of where they might blockade next. So we're keeping a close eye on that for you. Let's talk about a story that we've talked about uh, earlier on the show, and that is the skyrocketing insurance rates for condo buildings. This is incredible as these strata corporations have to renew their insurance for condo buildings in Vancouver. These condo costs 
are absolutely going through the roof. And a lot of strata corporations just pulling their hair out. How can we afford this? For a lot of condo owners, it's generating huge increases in their monthly condo fees. Have a listen to this now. This is Chuck Byrne. He's the executive director of the Insurance Brokers Association of BC. And he spoke earlier with Jody Vance about what is causing these huge increases in condo insurance premiums. Five months ago, we didn't see this coming. In fact, I'm not sure it was all that apparent even three months ago. But uh, what has occurred globally is a diminishment of capacity. And Canada is a big user of insurance capacity, particularly in the lower mainland because of earthquake cover. Uh, what you've got is uh, a select number of insurance companies who had competed heavily over the years for this type of business, realty business is what we call it, including stratas as well as apartment buildings. Uh, and as a result, uh, competition tends to push prices perhaps below where they should be. So we've had this inordinate length of time where, uh, and I know it's small comfort to your listeners, but they've probably been paying less for their strata building insurance over the last decade than on average they might have. And that's partly the insurance industry's fault for being so competitive. The bad news is we now have a global constraint on capacity and uh, a, a severe loss problem in the lower mainland and southern Vancouver Island specifically. All right, Chuck Byrne, Insurance uh, Brokers Association, talking about skyrocketing insurance costs for condo buildings. This is resulting in a pass-along to condo owners in their monthly fees going up as a result. If they can even get the insurance when they can find it, it's very expensive. Let's check in now with my colleague at the Vancouver Sun, Dan Fumano, the very fine City Hall columnist there for the Sun. He wrote an awesome article on this issue, which I tweeted out. You should uh, definitely check him out on Twitter as well, at Fumano on Twitter. Dan, very pleased to welcome you back. How are you doing? Hey, good, thanks, Mike. How are you? I'm great. Thanks a lot for coming on. So this uh, issue with these soaring insurance bills for these buildings, I know you checked in with uh, the Anchor Point building in New Mm. West. Tell me what's going on there. Yeah, so this is just one particular condo building in New West. I mean, you know, a pretty standard building. It's a 110-unit building. Uh, I can't remember exactly how many stories, but it's a condo tower in New West. Um, I think 30 years old or something like that. And basically they were looking at, they had been told, their strata council had been told by the insurance company to expect a big increase year over year in the premiums. So they'd been told to expect as much as a 40% increase, which is a big increase. So they had budgeted for that. But then last month when the renewal actually rolled around, the premium was closer to uh, like three and a half times. So instead of going from uh, 70, they were looking at 70 grand a year, Right. Last year, then ninety. They were budgeting for ninety-five grand this year, which would be a forty percent increase. But it was actually like two hundred sixty grand, so three and a half times what they had paid last oh. year. And people are just in shock. Yeah, no kidding, three hundred and fifty percent increase. That's crazy. What is causing this? Why is it happening? Well, that's the big thing. Is like it's it, nobody knows for sure. Um, it, we don't know exactly how widespread this is going to be. But uh, I talked to, you know, the head of the Condo Owners Association of BC, and he said, it's it's hard right now to know exactly how widespread this is going to be, how many buildings this is going to hit. It's hard to know exactly what's causing it. You know, the, the insurance companies are saying one of the issues, well, you just heard Chuck Byrne from the insurance brokers. They're saying, you know, rates have been too low for the last while. Some people are saying that it's because of uh, it's connected to global catastrophes. I was talking to the Insurance Industry Association, like the National Association. He, they were mentioning, you know, wildfires in Alberta, 
floods, things like this, climate-related things that insurance companies are having to pay out for. Uh, but at the same time, they're saying it has to do with very specific issues with each building because they're all assessed on a property-by-property basis. So it's hard to know what exactly is causing this, but it's weird because it seems to be hitting a bunch of different buildings all at the same time. Could it be a factor of some of these aging condo buildings as well that maybe need some maintenance? Maybe they're more prone to leaks or something if there's a flood in a unit, you know, if there's some deferred maintenance going on? Yeah, I guess so. It could be. But then there's also new buildings um, where this is happening. And like I say, I mean, you know, it's happening to 20-year-old buildings. It's happening to 30-year-old buildings. But uh, there was one building in Abbotsford. It was particularly you know, shocking increase. They they were looking at a 780% year-over-year increase in their insurance premium. And, <laughs> and, and, and that building, I think, was just one or two years old. So, again, I don't know if there's any specific problems with that particular building, but it is a weird thing where big, massive increases, not like 20 30%, but 200 300 400% are hitting a bunch of different buildings. And... Yeah, and all around the same time, just yeah. within, as Chuck Byrne was just saying on that clip from the Insurance Brokers Association, they didn't see this coming just a few months ago. Yeah, I mean, I've talked to some condo strata, people are on strata councils who are just freaking out about yeah. these uh, shocking uh, insurance uh, bills that they're getting. If they can get the insurance, if they end up knuckling under and paying the insurance bill, and if it's a huge increase, does that get passed along to individual condo owners with their monthly fees? Well, yeah, presumably. That's typically how it would work. Um, I mean, in the case of the New West building, they were looking at, you know, an increase of a couple hundred dollars per unit a month, I think, or close to that. And they weren't sure how they were going to do it because they basically already budgeted for the year. So they weren't sure if they're going to have to, you know, issue a sort of special one-time assessment, like a a levy to all the units, or if they were going to have to dip into the contingency fund or they weren't sure exactly how they were going to deal with it. But yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, this would have to be covered by individual yeah, condo owners. Yeah. What a sticker shock. And I know one of the guys you spoke to over at that anchor point building in new mm. West was a guy named Bruce Campbell, who's the president of the strata, but he's also like a unit owner in there. And this yeah. is a guy who's retired. He's retired with yeah. his wife and living on a fixed income. And all of a sudden you get walloped with some big hike in your, your condo fees. I mean, man, that's gotta, that's gotta take people by surprise and can be a, a, a financial crisis for some people, I imagine. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know yeah. how people deal with that. I mean, because, you know, property tax increases are, are hard enough, but for seniors on fixed incomes, they do have the option of deferring property taxes. But with these increases, I don't know. I don't think there's any way to get around paying this. Okay. Speaking to Vancouver Sun columnist Dan Fomano about rising uh, condo insurance prices, what can be done about this? Is there pressure on the government to kind of intervene in this thing or what can what can the government do about it? I'm not sure what exactly can be done. I mean, we did reach out to the finance minister, Carol James, um, our colleague, Rob Shaw, the Sun and Provinces uh, legislative correspondent, uh, reached out to Minister James's office. And basically all she said at this point is that it, it is something they're aware of and they are monitoring it. Um, they're looking at this closely. Uh, you do have uh, the Insurance Brokers Association came out just a few days ago and put out a specific uh, proposal saying, suggesting a couple of legislative reforms to the Strata Property Act, saying the government should make these specific changes. It's not going to immediately help this, you know, these soaring rates, but it should help stabilize the condo insurance market in the long term. Um, 
the, I don't, I'm not sure exactly what needs to be done or what could be yeah. done, but um, I'm not sure there's yeah, much. They, I'm not sure there's much they can do. I mean, what are they going right. to do? They can't come in and tell order these insurance companies to lower their rates or whatever. So I think it puts the government in, in a tough spot. But is oh, this yeah. a is this a phenomenon that's kind of exclusive to the condo sector, or what about like detached detached homes? Are they getting walloped with like similar huge insurance hikes? I haven't heard of that yet, and the folks that I've talked to in the insurance industry um, said they're not expecting that currently. Uh, they're not expecting this to hit uh, detached houses in the same kind of way. Uh, for one thing, it's just, you know, if you have a flood in a house, it typically just affects that one house. But if obviously, if you have a flood on the 19th story of a condo building, it could damage a bunch of other units too. So that was kind of the way they were... Uh, explaining this, but they're not expecting it to hit the detached house market yet, but who knows? Kind of a tough situation for a condo building if they can't afford a huge rate hike like that. If the building does not have insurance, like if their insurance expires, then you're in a real tough spot because if someone's trying to buy a unit in a building without insurance, you know, good luck trying to get a mortgage because when you go to get a mortgage, they're going to ask you for some proof of insurance. And if the building doesn't have it, you're in a tight spot. So I know that the, the condo market and the condo industry is, is really worried about the kind of the sure. knock-on effect of, of the situation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we are hearing about people who are trying to sell units, um, and they're worried about the status of their insurance and what's going to happen. It's definitely got a lot of people on edge. Good stuff, Dan. Thanks for coming on. Great. Thanks a lot, Mike. That is Dan Fimano. He's the City Hall columnist at the Vancouver Sun. If you check out the story that he did on some of these extraordinary skyrocketing insurance hikes for strata councils and condo buildings in Vancouver. It's unbelievable. Some of the amazing hikes in insurance rates in some of these buildings causing a crisis right now in the condo market. Give me a follow on Twitter. I tweeted out his article there at Mike Smith News on Twitter, S-M-Y-T-H on Twitter. And give Dan Fumano a follow there too, at Fumano on Twitter. This week marks the 10th anniversary of the Vancouver Winter Olympics. The opening ceremonies of the Games held exactly 10 years ago yesterday. Now, my next guest played a big part in that memorable night. You might not immediately recognize his name, but I guarantee you, you watched him on TV and you will vividly remember the amazing moment he created for all of us 10 years ago. Johnny Lyle in the studio. Johnny, thanks a lot for coming in. Thanks for having me. Okay, Johnny, you were the man. You will forever be linked with this moment. You were the guy, the snowboarder, who jumped through the Olympic rings and you stuck the landing there during the opening ceremonies 10 years ago this week. What an amazing moment. Like, is, is, it a, is, it, is this a wonderful memory for you, or is it like you'll, you'll forever be remembered? Oh, yeah, you were that guy. Yeah, no, for sure. <laughs> it's, uh, it's an awesome memory, and it brings back you know, lots of fond stories of everything that happened during the Olympics. Um, but, yeah, it's definitely something that's stuck with me for forever, and I will yeah. always be introduced as that guy. But I'm proud to have that, so it's, it's cool. Well, I think it's pretty awesome, I got to tell you. And I would love to play the audio of it right now, but uh, there are these copyright rules <laughs> yeah. around uh, the Olympics, and uh, CTV has got the exclusive rights to the to oh, the yeah. audio and sound. So if I was to play that, I mean, I'd love to play the audio right now. I think I get probably get sued, or you know, the IOC <laughs> would come up and drag me away yeah. to jail. 
so I can't play it. But yeah. I'm sure people will remember when you went through the Olympic rings and, and you stuck the landing and then you did, you said something, the classic line everyone will remember. Do you, re can you remember the line that you said? Can you repeat it yeah. for us? Yeah. Yeah. Welcome to the Vancouver 2010 Olympic Winter Games. Bienvenue. <laughs> <laughs> Bienvenue. Yeah. 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 That's kind of stuck in my head. <laughs> <laughs> I bet it is. I bet yeah. it is. Um, good jump, by the way. Thanks. Yeah. Congratulations. You just, you absolutely nailed it. Now, let me ask you about how this incredible moment all came together for you. Now, back then, you were, you were 23 years old at the time, right? Right. Now, were you like a competitive snowboarder at the time or something? Like, how did you get this gig? Yeah, I was snowboarding professionally at the time, and um, one of my uh, sponsors reached out and uh, told us about an audition for a commercial or something. So we, me and a few other snowboarders went to it, and it was all very secretive. Um, and then, uh, after a few callbacks, uh, they ended up choosing three of us and then we had to sign some non-disclosure agreements and, uh, then they told us what we were actually doing and showed us a computer generated edit of what it was going to look like. And we were all just kind of shocked. <laughs> um, okay. yeah. What so. went, what went through your mind when you first saw the stunt on the computer simulation, what you were going to have to do? Yeah. Do I don't know. We kind of like almost laughed a little bit. Like, how's that going to work? Um, yeah. uh, and, uh, yeah, this was probably about a year before the Olympics. Right. Uh, and it sort of changed and a, a little bit as we went along. Uh, but I, I don't know. It wasn't really until, you know, we were in the stadium and the jump was set up in BC place and, you could really feel the magnitude of it all where, oh. where it really, yeah, it really hit you. I bet it did. Yeah. Now, um, you mentioned that there were three of you that had an opportunity to possibly do this. Is yeah. that right? Yeah, they chose three of us just, I guess, for safety of having some backup. Uh, and one guy, unfortunately, got uh, Kevin Sansloan. He got injured uh, when we were practicing oh. in BC Place. Uh, and then it was Sheen Campos and myself, and we were practicing every day and you know, doing the jump and saying our line and, uh, we both could do it the same. And, and, uh, we were sort of wondering like, when are you going to pick one of us? And, uh, it wasn't until the night before the opening ceremonies that the producer David Atkins came out and, uh, did a coin toss. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So it just as easily could have been Sheen. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. This is kind of like, you know, is it going to be Neil Armstrong or Buzz Aldrin as the <laughs> first guy to step out of this capsule? But um, so you got it by a coin toss? Wow. Yeah, I know. It's crazy. Yeah. But yeah and that's because what? You were both perfectly, both yeah. basically the set, your abilities were pretty much the same? Exactly. And we oh. both put the, all the work in and, and it was kind of cool because it was just a 50-50 chance. You know, yeah. I think if, if he came out and just chose one of us, that would have been like, oh, you didn't actually want me. <laughs> Instead, yeah. it was, you know, we both had the same opportunity. Okay, well, fair enough, I guess, right? So did you call the, did you call the flip? Um, I called the flip. What you, Tails never fails? Tails. That's you right. You picked tails. I eh? picked tails. Yeah. <laughs> tails never fails. Yeah. All right. So it comes up tails and now you know you got the job. You're going to have to jump through the Olympic rings right with, you know, how many people were watching that night? Yeah. TV. I don't know. Some people like, yeah, millions of people. Some, some people said like a billion. Like, uh, oh my yeah, God. Just worldwide. Yeah. Like a massive number. Just a little bit of pressure, right? Eh? Yeah. I know yeah. that was the other thing we were talking about is really it was just 24 hours of extreme pressure. <laughs> <laughs> I bet it was. Yeah. Now, when you were practicing, so you actually practiced in the state, in the, in the stadium there, did you? Yeah. For about yeah. a month leading up. 
Okay, and how did the practices go? I mean, did you stick it every time? Uh, no, like we would jump it and sometimes fall a little bit. And then, um, but as we got going and they put the Olympic rings in and, you know, a bunch of stuff uh, progressed as we went. And um, yeah, definitely had a few falls in there, like maybe the week, a week before. And that was sort oh. of nerve wracking. Uh, but other than that, it was mostly landing. So uh, yeah, like we knew the jump could would work and we could do it. It's just if uh, your nerves are going to take over and screw you up. <laughs> right, right. Speaking of Johnny Lyle, he's the snowboarder who jumped through the Olympic rings and s- stuck his landing in the opening ceremonies ten years ago this week. So y- you weren't. It wasn't real snow, was it? There was. What did you land on there? Yeah, it was this stuff called Snowflex, which is kind of like a carpet. It's like plastic carpet they use in lots of indoor ski facilities. In other places in the world, um, so it slides, it works, but it's not that great. Still looked okay. Yeah, it, yeah, it looked. worked. It, um, and there's obviously no way to get snow in there, so right. we had to make it work. Okay, so here we go. We got the gig. It's ten years ago yesterday. It's the opening ceremonies, and you're ready to go. What's going through your mind there? You're you're at the top of the ramp there. Yeah. Oh, just. Um, yeah, extremely nervous, but um, it was also just such an exhilarating uh, thing. And I remember the producer David Atkins just saying, "You know, just focus on the the take off, the drop in, the take off, like your grab, right now. Just think that through your head, because if you think about other stuff, you could uh, freak yourself out." And so that's what I did. I just thought about the jump and, and just kind of ran that through my head until until I. I had to do it, and then luckily it all worked the way it was supposed to. Oh, it sure did. You nailed it. I mean, you did, you did an awesome job. Not only the jump, but also the the welcoming line that you had there. It was, the whole thing was just perfect. Now, um, so congratulations. I oh, think it's just thank it you. was just wonderful. And um, there's also some other interesting stories you got. I know from behind the scenes. What's going on with Wayne Gretzky? You're talking to Wayne Gretzky there that <laughs> night too, right? Yeah, yeah. Like we afterwards, there was a press conference at the convention center and. And I was sent over there and I walked into this room where everyone was to meet. And the only person standing in there was Wayne Gretzky holding a beer. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, oh my God, if there's any time to say hi. So I went up and introduced myself and we just got to chatting. And uh, yeah, that was a big Olympic highlight for sure. Yeah, for, for sure. And and what's the what's this deal? What, Gretzky was sitting next to Bobby Orr or yeah, something when you yeah, made the like, junk? Yeah, they were sitting, and I guess they watched me do some rehearsals and stuff. And he said that, yeah, Bobby leaned over and was like, man, I'm nervous for this kid. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I was like, you know, I was just like, what? You and Bobby Orr were talking about me? Um, <laughs> so that was uh, that was a funny, funny story for sure. Yeah, imagine if Bobby Orr was nervous, imagine how you felt. Yeah, like guy. what? Yeah. <laughs> You're the guy who had to do it. <laughs> exactly. So what was it like for you after you nailed it? Uh, you know, your pictures on newspapers and hmm. TVs around the world. I mean, what a moment. Did, what kind of impact did that have on your life? Yeah, I mean, it was... Uh, I don't know. It was a sort of surreal thing after the fact. Um, and, uh, yeah, I don't know. It just, it made me, uh, like more proud to be a Canadian than ever. Um, yeah. and, uh, it was, I don't know, something that I can take away from, like, and I try to for, you know, the rest of my life, just, uh, being under that sort of pressure and, uh, having to produce, um, and yeah. just try and, uh, I don't know, try and, 
keep that with me for the rest of my life. So the, I, if I can, if I can do that, I can do anything or right. The, the <laughs> jacket like you were, the jacket you were wearing, understand you, you, is it your dad that got it framed for you? Mm-hmm. Where's that hanging? Hanging yeah. in your home? Yeah. That's just hanging in my living room at home. It was, uh, yeah, the jacket was just hanging, um, in a closet somewhere. And, uh, yeah. he had the bright idea of taking it and getting it framed nicely, like a, like a hockey Jersey or something. And uh, it's cool with the with the art that, that was done on the jacket. It looks it kind of just looks like a piece of art in the room. Yeah, and I hear you got you got a boat that you named Bienvenue. Is that right? You want to be part of your signature line? There? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and after the Olympics, like all my friends would always say, even whenever I arrived anywhere, like Bienvenue. Yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> and so it was really just stuck stuck with me. Um, and, uh, so yeah, I, I love boating and exploring the coast line around here. And, uh, so I got a boat a few years ago and that just, that name came up and it had to be, yeah. It just had to be. Yeah. Johnny, you did us all proud here 10 years ago this week. Congratulations. Nice jump. You nailed it. Thanks, Mike. All right, Johnny. Thanks a lot for coming in. That is Johnny Lyle. He is the snowboarder who famously jumped through the Olympic rings at the opening ceremonies of the Vancouver Olympics 10 years ago this week. He nailed it. And uh, I was very pleased to have him in the, in the studio here to give you the behind-the-scenes story of the whole thing.